still switched on? Yes. Then I shall certainly stay here. What happened? Just deflected over the dome. The Gravitron deflected it. Yes. And that gives me an idea. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're exploring this classic series from the beginning to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're talking about the 1967 story, The Moon Base. I'm your host, and whenever I come across a lab full of chemicals, my favorite thing is to mix them all together and see what happens. It's hard to resist, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, you may have heard this, but you know, there are a number of people in the country who die every year, right? Because they're like cleaning their bathroom and they decide to mix bleach and ammonia. And that's, oh. you know, that's a deadly gas, you know? So when, when oh, yeah. we come across them basically do that, doing that in this story, I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, especially in this <laughs> enclosed, you know, air system and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my co-host is Guy, and as far as I'm concerned, he can get off the moon now. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been fun. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> so uh, this story, we get the second appearance of the Cybermen. And at least, I mean, even though I've just, you know, ruined it, um, at least unlike the Dalek stories, they don't ruin it by putting the Cybermen in the title of this time around anyway. <laughs> they did originally consider calling it like the return of the Cybermen and stuff like that. Yeah. And this story was actually commissioned before the 10th planet ended, right? So the 10th planet, the final Hartnell story was the introduction of the Cybermen and they were immediately popular. So, so as the weeks were going on, they immediately asked uh, uh, Kip to... I know his name announced Kit Peddler. That's it. They immediately asked oh, the writer know. Kit Peddler uh, to do another one. <laughs> I uh, I noticed that name in the credits, and I immediately thought, uh, you know, that must be one of those fake names like Cordwainer Bird <laughs> or Alan Smithy or something like that. You know, for yeah. somebody who wasn't uh, pleased with the outcome. Right. It's not. I do believe it's slightly like a nickname, or you know, like his full name is a little bit different. But he was someone I think of as like Heinlein or something, where he was this just fully realized, completely competent guy, right? He was a scientist and he discovered things and he wrote these stories and he built his own cars from scratch. And, you know, and so he's hmm. just one of those guys, like you're, you're just going to feel inferior <laughs> in the, um, <laughs> in the background. Well, you know. based on, based on this, uh, story arc, uh, at least there's one thing I don't particularly <laughs> feel inferior about. Okay, spoiler. <laughs> Toby interviewed uh, his daughters as part of the background materials. They actually had this, I don't understand why, but the BBC apparently has this policy that for an animated episode, the actors cannot comment on it. They can't do a commentary. So mm. with the last story in this one where, they, where they're half animated and half live, the live episodes they would do, you know, the, the actors talking about what it was like in the script and, and all that stuff. And the animated ones, like in this one, each animated one, um, he interviewed one of the, of the two daughters uh, about him. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they were, then you know, so, yeah, he, and I mentioned that because at one point Toby says, well, most people who are sort of geniuses, you know, they're like bad about cleaning up the house or, 
you know, remembering their appointments or whatever. And like, nope, nope, he was great at everything. (laughs) (laughs) So as it becomes kind of a tradition with the Cybermen, almost every time you see them, they've redesigned themselves. (laughs) So kind of, you know, obviously they're looking to get the design right. But what became part of the Cybermen idea is that they're always improving themselves, right? So, so mm, and getting rid enough. of previous flaws. And so, and this is our first Cyberman redesign, which I think overall looks definitely much better. We lose the sock on the head, which didn't really work yeah, for me. I actually, the uh, everything from the forehead up looks pretty good. It has kind of a streamlined look, um, kind of like it reminds me of a like old 1930s Chrysler air, airflow <laughs> right. car. If you remember, the first ones had these big uh, like spotlights on their head or whatever. Just, <laughs> yeah. These guys, they have a headlight type thing, but it's um, it's it just has this real sort of machine age streamlined look to it. It's neat looking. Right. Um, but then from the forehead down, everything kind of went to pot for me. I, uh, <laughs> I was less impressed with the rest of the design. You'd rather they were still holding the accordion things or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Might be a minor improvement, but uh, yeah. Now, one thing I'm pretty much. sure you'll also be unhappy about is they lose the sing-song voice from the first one. Now they're... Yes, I noticed that. I was looking forward to it, and uh, man, that was a letdown. Yeah, you can tell they've basically gone most of the way to Daleks with it. I mean, it's it's different, but they're basically doing the same technique, right? They're just modulating the voice in a mechanical yeah, way. Yeah, now they've, now they've got this. It, it's much lower pitched now and much more monotonous. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, not an improvement in my book. <laughs> we also get what becomes the iconic musical theme for them. Uh, I'll probably put it in here, you know, with the horns and stuff. I don't know if you noticed. Mm, I did not notice. I, I guarantee if you if you heard it again, you would probably recognize it because it's pretty. It's funny because it was just a piece of stock music that the guy threw in there for them mm. that it sort of became their their theme. Ah, uh. well, let's see. This was two years for the actual moon landing, so they. I had to make it all up themselves. Although, uh, we, well, I just published uh, Capricorn 1. Uh, or no, it's publishing uh, this Saturday. So, uh-huh. um, <laughs> That was a good episode, by the way. Um, <laughs> good. Now, it does mean I've now burned through all of our host choice. So, <laughs> still uh-huh. oh, so we don't have any backup uh, material left. And- uh, right. Oh, so okay. I will find some time here. I think I got plenty on my list to do. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, so let's see. And this is not too hard to tell. The script was written before Jamie had joined the crew. Uh, So it's sort of like when they go on vacation, he gets a convenient coma for the first two episodes. Oh, yeah. And uh, the director had no interest in Troughton getting dressed up as old women and all this, which we've seen in all the stories so far. I think the producers wanted to pull him back a bit, too. So now we start seeing a more serious doctor here. Yeah, yeah, I was just starting to warm up to him, and he's just most mostly dull as dirt in these episodes. <laughs> I thought, yeah, yeah, there's there's just throughout. I didn't find a whole lot of humor. You know, there's one, uh, one one part where Polly makes a little dig at him, or a very subtle little dig for uh, having studied under Doctor Lister and not having learned anything new since then, apparently. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, he he might just be leading her on too. But, it sounds uh, like you want him to bring back the recorder. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not in any hurry for that, and especially not in these episodes because uh, he might really freak Jamie out if he thinks of, uh, <laughs> that Piper is around. <laughs> okay, well, we've talked about a bunch of it already, so we might as well <laughs> jump into episode one. All right. Well, as you remember, last time on the Doctor. The doctor was taking everyone to Mars, but the TARDIS went out of control. <laughs> and it turns out that they end up not on Mars, but on the moon, Earth's moon, Luna. So they do what you do when you're on the moon. They put on some cheesy spacesuits and head outside. And these spacesuits, these are not like uh, uh, elaborate NASA spacesuits. They're like a clear plastic bubble on your head and a... Uh, you know, jumpsuit that goes Yeah, and the bubbles drove the actors nuts because, and you can totally tell watching, it takes about 20 seconds before those things just start fogging up and they couldn't see anything. Oh, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. But I will at least give them that they, you know, they handled the fact that there's not an atmosphere there, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they did uh, at least address that point. Uh, and the low gravity, because once they're out on the surface, uh, we see them jumping around with enthusiasm. Now, this is one of the animated episodes, so we don't know how the actual uh, live video jumping might have gone. But, uh, you know, in the animation, it's it's fine. Uh, yeah, it's a little funky that when they jump, there's a there's a musical theme that goes with them, sort of a bleep. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Quite, quite needed that. Yeah, <laughs> almost, almost, but not quite like a slide whistle, yeah. maybe a little more electronic or something. So, yeah, that's a little bit silly, but uh, they're jumping around, having some sport on the moon surface, and uh, Jamie ends up jumping right over the edge of a big crater. And uh, even though I think it's like a sixth of the gravity of Earth. Um, he still manages to hit the bottom of the crater hard enough that he gives himself a concussion. He's knocked out, and the other members of the crew uh, reach the rim of the crater. They see him lying down there. Fortunately, he came down right next to the door of a moon base. <laughs> and uh, two people emerge right away from the moon base and bring him inside. Uh, and they're in space suits too, so they're trying to stay uh, faithful to the known science of the day. Mm. So the companions uh, head on down to check it out. They knock and they get let in. We see the interior of a control room and uh, a bunch of scientists in there and a, a big display of a map of Earth, the whole whole world. Uh, and when there's these spotlights going across, and they look like spotlights. They're just big white circles, and they've got they've got these eight intersecting lines uh kind of like the uh, uh union jack you know the british mm-hmm. flag with the uh the two north south east west lines and then the two diagonals going across it but these are uh, these are as we'll soon soon find out to to uh guide the the progress of their uh the big machine they're using up there on the moon and one of these scientists suddenly comes down with a case of the veiny, which, uh, which is he gets these black veins traced on his skin. We'll find out later that the doctor says this is uh, it's a virus that infects their nerves. Uh, so it's tracing the paths of the, 
the nerves through their skin. Uh, at least the major nerves. I think if they got all the nerves, they'd probably just turn black. But they've got these very pronounced veins here. The subsequent conversation shows us that the Moonbase doctor has already come down with it. Uh, so there's a backup doctor coming from Earth. And the uh, the doctor and Polly... Now, this, this is happening before the doctor and Polly and Ben have arrived, I should mention. Because now... They arrive, and there are some uh, brief introductions. We learn that the guy in charge uh, is named Hobson. And the doctor, after some conversation that uh, informs him a relief rocket is coming, um, the doctor says, well, that's not us. I thought he was going to say, oh, I'm the doctor you sent mm -hmm. for, you know. But uh, no, he's, uh, he's playing it straight here. He says they're not from the relief rocket. They're just here to get Jamie and go. Polly insists on seeing him, so uh, Benoit, who is a French guy, um, and he even has a little silk scarf just to emphasize the fact that he's French, uh, and which ends up playing absolutely no part at all in the story. <laughs> but he, he offers to take Polly to the infirmary. The doctor deduces that this is a weather control center, and some sort of gravity control device is making it work. Um, and in the process, he reveals that he doesn't know what year or even what decade it is. He guesses it must be at least 2050, and it's actually 2070. Uh, so he's a full two decades off there. And we get some more detailed introductions. Uh, Benoit, the Frenchman, he's the number two man, and he's French. So he's really just an obvious choice to uh, usurp Hobson uh, at the <laughs> earliest opportunity. So th this is actually a decent story element because uh, our expectations of the show will be subverted in this case. Uh, other guys are introduced, but their names don't really matter, so I didn't bother putting them in my notes. <laughs> yeah, the other um, expectation thing I'll mention is Bidwis Blur, it doesn't matter, which is Hobson does start out to as, I mean, he is a jerk, and he's a jerk sort of throughout, but it's not one of the, it's not evil jerk as it turns out, right? I mean, he's just trying to do his job. Yeah. Right? He's not trying, to, not trying to take over anything or, or you know, get anyone killed or anything. Yeah. But we, we've, we've seen characters like that in the past, too, that they initially, they're kind of prickly. But uh, uh, once once they get to know what, what's going on, they become more reasonable. So it's uh, not as surprising as Benoit not being the... A traitor, but uh, but still uh, mildly, you know, they can go either way with guys like uh, Hobson, I guess. So the Gravitron works by controlling the tides on Earth. Uh, so it's keeping the weather nice all the time everywhere on Earth, and except like out in the middle of the oceans where nobody is anyway, I guess. Um, and suddenly an alarm goes off and another guy has these black veins spreading all over his skin. So he's he's the third one who's come down with it. They get a call on the radio from Earth. Uh, there's a hurricane near Hawaii. It's getting dangerously close, and Earth wants to know what the deal is. Why why aren't they doing anything about it? Control says their guy in charge, who's named Rinberg, uh, he's interested in what's causing the sickness on the station. He's not actually interested enough to come to the radio himself, but he's curious. Um, 
One of the men of the moon base hears a strange background noise on this transmission, and uh, he says they're being monitored by someone near the base. Mm -hmm. And we do a brief cut to a cheesy-looking flying saucer that's parked <laughs> nearby on the moon's surface. Uh, it's very... Um, it's almost your... Uh, Two pythons glued together, well, which, flying saucer. <laughs> well, at least when it's actually on the surface, you know, I kind of love that because I like the, you know, the 50s science fiction flying saucer thing. It's going to be <laughs> another story when they actually move. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, yeah. For now, they're just parked kind of out of the way, maybe in a crater. You know, it's they've got a ledge right near it, I think. So it's fairly well concealed. Yeah, we'll see later on that it's not so well concealed that it can't be seen from the base with a <laughs> handheld telescope. But uh, Nobody's noticed it there yet. So Control, uh, back on Earth, says uh, that what they're going to do in, in lieu of any better options, they're going to send blood samples back to Earth for investigation uh, of this veiny virus. Uh, the samples can't go until the next rocket, though, a month from now. Um, and I'm curious, is this referring to the relief rocket, or is this, did they just forget that there was a relief rocket supposed to arrive they might have. I think they had said right up front that the relief rocket was supposed to be two weeks away, so they might be conflating them, you know. Um, oh, okay, I, I could be, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to dwell too much <laughs> on it, but uh, anyway, the samples can't go back to Earth for a while yet, but they say, if you radio information about this virus, we'll do our best to identify it and suggest treatment. Um, and now Hobson, the guy in charge here in the base, he, he insists on talking to Rinberg, the guy in charge down on Earth. But Rinberg can't be bothered right now. He's busy with something or other. Uh, so that, again, sets up another thing where maybe Rinberg is some kind of traitor or saboteur, but... Uh, uh, again, that's not going to go anywhere. So the doctor is ready to try and help out in the sick bay, being a doctor and all. Uh, and in the sick bay, he looks over Jamie. He says he'll be all right, but he'll take a bit to recover. Then Jamie starts babbling about the McCrimmon Piper. Now, if I remember right, Jamie himself is a McCrimmon, so this is like a family legend, I think. Yeah. Um, he says, the McCrimmon Piper, don't let him get me. Uh, and Polly says he's, he keeps asking us, uh, you know, keep the Piper away from him. And that doesn't go anywhere for now. It will in a little bit here. Uh, but the doctor, uh, he's puzzled by this, by this veiny sickness. He says, there's something about this epidemic that I don't quite understand. It's not like a real disease at all. It's almost as if, then <laughs> he cuts himself off as... This doctor and the past doctor have been known to do, just to leave us hanging. Uh, back in the control room, uh, it's this is the night cycle of the moon base now. The doctor points out at some point uh, that they've got basically 14 days, a fortnight of, uh, of sun and 14 days of darkness. Um, so they've got some artificial lighting in the, in the base to... Give everybody a relatively normal sleep cycle. Hobson can't rest uh, because the gravitron is acting up, and then he has, uh, you know, the the trope of as you know, Bob, where he <laughs> delivers some 
exposition. Uh, he says, you know the score as well as I do. Five units off center, we lift half London into space. Five more in the Atlantic water level goes up three feet. <laughs> uh, so they're playing for big stakes here with their little weather control device. Right. Uh, oh, background thing I'll mention. Yeah, uh, background thing. Uh, the graviton thing is important and comes back, and, and it is a large uh, device thing that we see there, at least the part that we see. And Troughton had a habit, um, you know, when they would first start actually filming on the set of, of getting there in the morning and walking around the set and making sure he kind of understood everything and all that. And so he was standing underneath the Gravitron and he walked away and it crashed down. And he's, he's huh. pretty much convinced that it, he would have been killed if he had actually been standing there because it was very heavy. Uh, so, uh, so that's uh, interesting. Uh, uh, uh. Well, it's good he didn't linger then. That's uh, that's good. Um, I'm just starting to like him too. So, uh, <laughs> so gonna keep him around for a while. Hopefully, hopefully in stories I enjoy more. But we'll uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. Ben comes into the control room and offers to help out. So Hobson gives him some gopher jobs, including going to the food storage room and helping out the guy Ralph, who's there. In the food storage room, Ralph finds a broken sack. Uh, it's not clear uh, from the video, but uh, it's in the script. It says that it's a sack of sugar, which uh, makes sense. Uh, it also reminds me of a Simpsons episode, but I won't bore anybody <laughs> with that. Uh, <laughs> but sack of sugar, uh, if it doesn't trigger any bells uh you're not a true simpsons fan <laughs> anyway uh ralph finds his broken sack of sugar and uh that's when ben arrives to help and uh, ralph uh welcomes him and then says hey are you responsible for the broken bags here <laughs> like, like that's the most natural question in the world ben points out that he just got here mm-hmm so Ralph sends Ben to find a light, which is, you know, around the corner or some such thing. And while Ben is off looking for that, a mystery figure comes up. We don't see who or what it is, uh, but it zaps Ralph and it drags him off. And, of course, when Ben comes back, Ralph is gone. Back in the sick bay... um, the doctor wakes Polly, uh, apparently to show her this little piece of silver paper he's found that <laughs> he doesn't know what it is. When suddenly sick Dr. Evans starts screaming and babbling about the silver hand. So now we know that this lurking menace is Johnny Silverhand from <laughs> Cyberpunk 2077. Um, and whether you should watch this story arc or play Cyberpunk 2077, I will reveal my shocking <laughs> conclusion at our end-of-show discussion. Okay. <laughs> In the control room, meanwhile, uh, Ben, or not meanwhile, but immediately thereafter, Ben tells Hobson that Ralph has just vanished into thin air. He, he went off and hasn't returned. And right after that, the doctor comes in and tells Hobson that Evans has died. Hobson doesn't want to tell Earth yet about all this because he wants to investigate more first. And he uh, obliquely suggests that the people back on Earth are uh, the pain in the rear, kind of. <laughs> Which is, uh, having worked in the corporate world since the mid-90s, uh, I can see 
<laughs> that could be the case. Although, knock on wood, I have been very fortunate in that regard. I think I think you maybe had some worse experiences overall than I have in that regard. But also, you've had some good ones. So yeah, anyway, I can't complain too much. <laughs> in the sick bay, Polly is giving Jamie some water. He freaks out, then he passes out uh, because he saw something behind her. She turns around and screams, which makes the doctor and Hobson and some of the others all rush in. And Polly reveals that she saw something, but she doesn't know what. It was enough to make her scream, but it went out the door. Um, <laughs> and while all this is going on, Evans's body has vanished. Uh, I, I believe it was that figure that she saw had taken the body. Mm. And then Benoit, the Frenchman, he interrupts Hobson. He says, another man has collapsed from the veiny sickness. The Gravitron is acting up again. Khrushchev's do it idle wild. It's just a big mess. So they all... Leave Polly alone with Jamie to go off and attend to this new business. He wakes and asks for water. She goes to get it. The door opens, and Jamie is horrified to see it's the Phantom Piper of <laughs> Clan McCrimmon, or whatever the name is. But it's actually just a dumb-looking robot guy. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. Okay. One thing I've talked about before, this is the... This isn't the first, but it's, you know, probably the first most canonical example of the base under siege, which is a theme in the Troughton era. In this case, they actually asked uh, the writer to essentially do that. because It's one of those, you know, let's save money by, hmm. you know, having a contained set and just a couple smaller sets and all that. And I can't remember much about it, but wasn't that pretty much the premise of the initial introduction of the Cybermen yep, also? Yeah, the, the, the Tenth Planet was, uh, I don't, I, you know, I'd have to go back and look at all these stories to see if it's technically the first in Doctor Who, uh, but it was absolutely a base under siege uh, story because they were in the North Pole or, so, or something like that. And um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so, and what, one thing that cracks me up, I think it's in the second or third episode, is there is actually a point where where I think Hobson says, we're under siege. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good to have it, uh, good that they fess up to it anyway. <laughs> okay, episode two. So the Cyberman approaches Jamie, and Jamie is pleading for the Piper to leave him alone. And I'll say here, I mean, thankfully, Jamie gets more character later, but... It on it's annoying. His the way he's pleading on him. The only time you hear him in the first two episodes is when he's oh the piper, it's the piper, it's the piper. He's like freaking <laughs> shut up already. <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah, even, well, in his def so, somewhat in his defense, he is delirious from having a concussion. <laughs> yeah, so. and I think he even annoys the Cyberman because the Cyberman's approaching him, <laughs> and the logical thing would be to take Jamie because he's seen him, right? Um, but instead, mm -hmm. after a bit, he turns away and goes to one of the unconscious patients and takes him out. And I, <laughs> I do feel like it's like, this is just going to be less hassle. <laughs> <laughs> and Polly comes in and she sees the Cyberman exiting and she gives a classic Doctor Who female scream and I, that's what gets the others rushing into the room. <laughs> uh, I, I will say, uh, I think it was the last story I forgot to mention and I, I wanted to like clip it out and stuff. There's, she has a scream in there that is pretty much the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> so, you know, oh, I, 
<laughs> I didn't I didn't pick up on that. I'm usually good at spotting that in different media, but well, it didn't exist yet. But you know, I think it was a, maybe a precursor to it. <laughs> so, right. So her story about it being a Cyberman is hard to believe because everyone knows the Cybermen were destroyed in the Tenth Planet. And at this time, you know, it's a basically an old children's tale. You know, by now, which I do. That is something uh, that is kind of fun about. Doctor Who is that they'll occasionally be involved in like stopping the Daleks and the Dalek invasion of Earth or this, and then some later story. It's like an ancient almost myth, right? And they were they were there, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. But Hobson, he's systematically trying to work out the situation. It's like, you know, patients are disappearing from the sick bay, but you'd need a spacesuit to leave the base. There are no suits missing. Like what? What could be going on now? <laughs> as usually happens to the TARDIS crew. Hobson points out that the bad stuff started happening once the TARDIS crew showed up. <laughs> and this is the first time he says, you can get off the moon now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't blame the guy too much. I mean, I mean, the timing is just uh, pretty damning. <laughs> well, yeah, it is that problem with what is it, Miss, um, what's the murder TV? Oh, Murder, She Wrote, right? Where it's like. Oh, she, she goes, goes off to a cocktail party and somebody dies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Jessica Fletcher. That one. <laughs> so you know, in the last story, the famous line was "Nothing in the nothing on earth can stop me now." And I, I'm actually pretty uh, affectionate to you. Can get off the moon now. I'd like to start using that in my my usual speech. <laughs> in part because he keeps coming back to it. Right, that's his like favorite way to <laughs> go after somebody. Um, get off of my moon yeah <laughs> you kids get off my moon <laughs> here we get something that you could see as a kind of dramatic monologue i suspect from what you said you don't see it that way which is that trouton gives a speech about the need to fight the evil that is bred in corners of the universe and you know we hartnell had a couple of those kind of speeches although his i think were a little more mm -hmm. impactful yeah and uh well this is a spoiler, I suppose, but screw it. Uh, <laughs> the doctor doesn't seem to have any compunctions about killing in this mm -hmm. uh, in this story arc. I mean, yeah, granted, the Cybermen don't really have much uh, that's uh, worth losing at this point. Or, well, that's not the right way to put it. But you know <laughs> what I mean? They they've they've lost all their feelings. They they have terrible style. They're just nothing re redeeming about them. But uh, uh, you know, Dr. Or Will Hartnell, he was always very insistent that he wouldn't, uh, kill. Although, you know, he, he kind of, uh, what was it? Asimov's laws, you know, or, or yeah, allow through, right, through an action. action. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he allowed a lot of that through an action. But also sometimes when he had those, those monologues and, you know, everybody on the set had their fingers crossed because they didn't know if Hartnell was going to be able to make it through it. But he actually did a, you know, a really good job on on those. Um, uh, and this, you know, this doesn't quite live up to it, but it's sort of the first time the doctor's. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can kind of tell that part of the idea here is the doctor is starting to realize that he, you know, that fighting evil is his his thing. I think. Yeah. So I have a question that's this is totally unrelated to mm -hmm. this particular story, but so the doctor did his regenerating thing, and now we've got a guy with a completely different person not completely different he's still got some mischief in him there is some overlap in personality uh but 
he seems like pretty much a different person, not just physically, but also personality-wise. And yet he, he can remember what the doctor did in the past, unless that's all just from cribbing from the diary. <laughs> uh, it's not entirely clear to me yet, but uh, it seems like he can actually remember at least some things. So I'm wondering, do they really ever give an explanation for what the deal is? Like why his personality has changed pretty drastically? Well, I think the idea is that you do just in get kind of a remixing of things. Um, and I mean, obviously it was a debate when they were figuring this out. Cause I mean, this was a, and the, and the period we're watching here was very stressful for everyone because they didn't know if this was going to work, right? Nobody had just replaced their main actor before and Hartnell was popular and, and all that. Right. And so of course they debated how much he should act like Hartnell and how much not to. And of course he, Troughton did not want to act like Hartnell. He wanted to do his own thing. Oh, sure. Um, He's a different guy. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that they they get more into what regenerations are about and, and all that. But that's pretty much what it comes down to is just you're kind of, you know, you're kind of remixing the chemicals, <laughs> talk about that theme in the story, and, and seeing what comes out each time. And, and more over time, um, they'll spend their first few episodes sometimes just kind of figuring out uh, who they are, right? Uh, 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 you know. Well, fair enough. Now we get something that is definitely a trope, especially from the Hartnell days, is the doctor promises he'll find a cure for this mysterious day, uh, disease. Hobson gives him 24 hours, and after that, they can get off the moon. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, don't e I, can, I don't even know how many times now the doctor sets out to cure a pandemic. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was it? The... the the sensorites. Oh, no, not the. So that's the I was. Idea. I was thinking solarian. The right, sensorites. Right. Yeah, so half the time I of, forget yeah. the name. The other half the time you do. <laughs> but also there was the arc. Remember when they caused the um, the plague uh, when uh, when Dodo brought the cold. In, oh you know, yeah, and, that's the one that had the gigantic statue. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we definitely have this story comes up a lot, <laughs> and. Oh, and, you know, one of the things you get with some of them had to do with small sets is that they're like, so when he's like, when it's time for him to, okay, I'm going to cure this disease, they're like, okay, I'm going to take you to the, whatever they call it, you know, the, where we've got the, all the disease curing stuff. And they walk like two steps and there's just like a tiny uh, little uh, table uh, <laughs> and it's supposed to be yeah. like a room or something or a lab or whatever. Yeah. He's got this little, uh, you know, sort of like a kitchen breakfast bar yeah. counter that's got all the mic microscope and stuff on it. <laughs> and so back in the main room or the control room, I mean, one reason I, I kind of called it the main room because there's right off the main room is also a control room that turns out to be important. So, you know, but only one or two people can be in there at a time and, and all this. So uh, in the main room where, where, you know, all these engineers do their work, uh, Hobson's trying to figure out what's wrong with the Gravitron. And if they can't get control of it, all hell will break loose on Earth. Uh, he likes to talk that way a lot. And they spend a long... So there's this really long scene here with none of the TARDIS crew that's interesting where they're just going around talking and doing expedition dump and the Earth calls and complains about the weather. And, you know, you do get a sense that there is also a political problem because basically... Now, they don't say who. Are we talking about the UK, the West? You know, uh, we don't know. Maybe in 2070, you know, there's some different configuration. But the problem is that yeah, it's probably the United Nations or some such nonsense. Yeah. 
whoever the sort of Western group is, they sort of talked everybody else into this weather station. And now everybody's pissed off that the weather's going crazy. <laughs> so, so it's a political problem. But I will say, it, even though I like shows experimenting and I like not having to have the same characters in every scene, but this, it, it just kind of drags because there's nothing interesting going on. There's nothing really for the actors to do. And you're missing the ability of one of the main characters, you know, one of the TARDIS crew to at least spice things up. So I got bored during this and it goes on and on for a few minutes. Um, yeah. Although, although even... Even in the cases in the, in this story arc where the doctor is present, uh, he generally doesn't get to do much spicing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are one or two exceptions, but uh, yeah. yeah so, uh, although there is one funny thing at the end of this, which is while the engineers are working, the doctor quietly shows up and he has these really huge tweezers and he's you know, secretly and quietly taking samples of hair and stuff off of the engineers <laughs> as they're walking around. <laughs> it reminds me that there there was this silly Saturday Night Live skit years ago that I'm probably the only person who remembers it or who liked it when it aired. Um, but it was a talk show, and it was called You Can Pick Your Nose and You Can Pick Your Friends, But You Can't Pick Your Friend's Nose. <laughs> And so you'd have the camera on somebody talking about, you know, world politics or something, and you'd see it from the side of the camera, this little finger coming in <laughs> slowly towards the person's nose trying to pick it. And they'd slap it out of the way, and don't you know the name of this show? <laughs> it just reminded me of that for some reason. <laughs> hey, we got to find our fun where we can. <laughs> So back in the sick bay, Jamie is doing his moaning bit <laughs> to Polly about the piper, <laughs> the piper, the piper. Um, and guess what? A cyberman shows up again behind her, and he uses a static electricity effect to knock her out. And apparently, this was a, a new effect you can do in TV. I mean, now you know, very common and, and all that, but where you get the superimposed uh, uh, lightning bolt uh, sort of thing. Yeah. And he then knocks Jamie out with the static and, again, takes off with another patient. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's either him whining about the Piper or somehow Jamie's just not Cyberman material because... Uh, <laughs> well, there will be, yet later, we will get an explicit reason from a Cyberman uh, that that apparently the, the Cyberman who's talking didn't wasn't aware of at the time. So maybe there's multiple reasons there were Jamie. So in the main room, they detect another air pressure drop. So every once in a while, they've been getting an air pressure drop and they don't know why. It seems like people are leaving the base, but the airlock isn't being used. And then in the storeroom, we see a large stack of presumably bags of sugar. And boy, they have a lot of sugar on this base. <laughs> and it's hiding a Cyberman-shaped hole in the wall. <laughs> the Cyberman comes through the hole and knocks over the sugar, and then he starts restacking it, which is nice of him. <laughs> and uh, the engineers find that parts of an antenna are missing. Uh, this is actually an antenna that's outside of the base, so they've detected that parts of it are missing. And, of course, it happened shortly after the doctor and the crew arrived, so they figure they have something to do with it. And a couple of engineers suit up and head outside to to fix this. And I, I actually thought this is interesting because um, we'd have to look up exactly when 2001 came out. But 2001 has exactly this plot point, right, where Hal tells the astronauts that one of the antennas has gone bad. 
and one of the astronauts goes outside to fix it. Um, mm. And then Hal murders him because in reality he just was trying to keep them from finding out his, his true mission. So I just thought it was amusing that I'm sure there's no crossover here, but this is they basically have the same plot where the antenna gets screwed with and a couple of them go outside to deal with it and, you know, don't come back. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> There's there's a lot of different variations on that though, like uh, oh the generator's out, you got to yeah. replace the fuse or you know stuff like that. It's yeah, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> the doctor and Polly are in the sick bay. The doctor can't find anything. He's been like looking at samples from boots and all this other stuff, and just can't find anything. As far as you mentioned early, and I like this. This is a good bit they gave to Polly because this because he had said earlier, oh, I've got a medical degree and. And it turned out he got it in 1888 working with um, Lister, which I believe is the person who invented Listerine um, mm-hmm. and had a lot to do or with it. else named after him. Yeah. I'm not sure which, but yeah. Um, and she's like, well, I was just wondering if there was anything that Joseph Lister didn't know in 1888 that might help you now. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and she says it so diplomatically that yeah. it calms the doctor down, but... Uh, you also get the sense that maybe she's uh, got her tongue firmly in cheek when she's saying it. So that was one of the high points of these shows for me. Yep. <laughs> so Hobson comes in and confronts the doctor again. And, uh, and the doctor now, he just, you know, as soon as he sees Hobson coming, he tells Paul, he look busy. And he starts, you know, uh, uh, examining another shoe and all this, just trying to show they're making progress. And he kind of ignores Hobson while he's running around and, <laughs> Once again, Hobson's like, you can all get off the moon now. It's like, okay, okay. <laughs> the doctor, um, and this is, it's funny because they have the TARDIS and it's working. It never gets disabled in this story. So this is unusual. Usually, right, the the TARDIS is unavailable or disabled in some way so that they can't leave yeah. the story. Here, they could leave at any time. They're just choosing to stick around. Yeah, because the doctor knows that trouble is afoot. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, in the very first episodes, that doctor under Hartnell wouldn't have cared and he would have been happy to leave. <laughs> yeah. The doctor suggests that Polly make everyone coffee to keep them happy. And uh, this hasn't gone down well historically, although the actress said she spent time with the writer and he was very supportive of women in science and such. And she thought of him as a supporter. She does get a bit to do later, but she still is more. I mean, she has that. A little bit like Susan, she started out being much more of an independent woman. And we at least have a – I don't recall if it gets better later. We at least have a dip where she started becoming the screaming woman. And as we said in um, The Underwater Menace, there's actually a point where she could absolutely help keep a bad thing from happening and she doesn't do anything about it. And Yeah. Yeah, you know, it it briefly crossed my mind, uh, you know, the stereotypical secretary who is insulted by making coffee, the, you know, Lily Tomlin, we mm-hmm. remember from nine to five. But um, on the other hand, you know, the doctor is looking at this microscope trying to cure <laughs> a plague. Uh, you know, I don't think Polly's going to stand in for him while he goes to make the well, coffee. So. And I will say the actress defends this. She said someone, and she actually said that someone needed to make the coffee, right? So. You know, yeah. she did not see it as a slight on her, but and I think partially that's just her kind of deciding to own these things and not, you know, take them in a negative way, which I which I think is a good way to go. Yeah, yeah, I uh, and and the way the doctor asked, even it didn't strike me as uh, you know demeaning or contemptuous or anything. It just like uh, you know, would you mind making some coffee for these guys to maybe keep them distracted? 
in the process, sort of like Dodo in the Ark, she kind of um, introduces a problem. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so uh, the engineers who are on the surface approach that antenna. They're walking in fake slow motion moon gravity. I always like watching how people do this and whether they think to control all their limbs that way or not. So the shadow of a Cyberman approaches them, and we then see two Cybermen do a very dorky attack. It's, you know, I guess they're, they're trying to do the slow motion thing, and they're just sort of bringing their hand. I don't know. It, it looked terrible. Uh, it just looked completely ineffective. And <laughs> it's also, it's clear, and I think this is some of their set problems. I think it's clear they couldn't get the engineers and the Cybermen in the same shot, right? So we have one shot of the Cybermen sort of bringing their hands down, mm -hmm. and another shot of the engineers kind of falling on the ground and they're clearly, you know, done at completely different times or d different places anyway. Um, <laughs> but the engineers are now unconscious on the surface. And meanwhile, the doctor has to report to Hobson that he found nothing. And guess what? Hobson is ready for them to leave now. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we get the full sentence this time, but, uh, <laughs> then Polly arrives with the coffee and offers sugar to everyone. But, uh, the first guy to take the coffee and the sugar immediately after taking a couple of sips, he falls over in exquisitely overdone agony. <laughs> and um, then we get a pretty good close up of his hand being covered by the veiny sickness thing. I thought they did a pretty good job with that. Um, I'm not even sure. But what it's, what um, I don't think we see it actually animate like we did in the cartoon, though. Like we don't see it actually spread. You know, I thought or... we did, but I'd have to go back and. Oh. And look, I thought we did, but I might be wrong about that. Um, hmm, okay, I could be wrong. And uh, the doctor realizes, you know, that it must be the sugar. And now I don't know why he know. Well, he does have a reason, actually, to know why it was the sugar and not the coffee. So he realizes it must be the sugar, and he knocks Hobson's coffee out of his hand before he can drink it. And he says <laughs> the, the sugar explains why not everyone gets sick, because not everybody takes sugar. So that was how he, he figured yeah, that one. Now, I, I was surprised here because... If I was Hobson and I'd already been suspecting these people because of the timing and all that, and then uh, and then they bring in coffee and people start <laughs> getting sick, uh, I mean, my I don't think it would have taken me a while to integrate that into my suspicions. That's a good point. <laughs> but, good point. It uh, could just be me. And now Hobson insists that they've searched every inch of the base. So how could the Cybermen get in? And the doctor has an insight and starts whispering, did Hobson's people search in this room, the infirmary? Uh, and at first I was confused because I thought the doctor was referring to the storeroom. So clearly there's this huge hole in the wall in the storeroom. So they didn't search too well. And I thought the storeroom is what they were thinking about, what the doctor was thinking about. But no, he says, you know, and uh, he says, what about this room, the infirmary? And Hobson says, no, there are always people in here. So no need to search. And Polly says, but there's nowhere in this room that they could hide. But the doctor realizes there is, of course. And <laughs> he goes around the patients, and there's one patient that's completely covered up. And it seems to know what's going on. So the Cyberman jumps out from under the covers. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I, I actually spent a couple minutes thinking about this because I was wondering, should I just be annoyed at at this, or is it actually kind of amusingly clever? Uh, and I, I don't know. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt here and say this is actually amusingly clever. You know that nobody spotted the the body with the with its face covered up by a sheet, which usually <laughs> indicates that you're dead. Right. And, and uh, also you have and the silver, silver boots, boots which sticking the out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in a in a crew of 19 men, you'd think they 
have a pretty good sense for who is where generally. But, uh, you know, then again, the Cybermen have always been, you know, they've been yanking bodies out of there. So, so they could have just replaced one of them that was there. So so I'm going to, I'm going to go with, this is actually not bad. That's my verdict. (laughs) And it's the end of the episode. All right. Episode three, halfway through, uh, in the sick bay, uh, Hobson says, you're right. It is them. (laughs) It is those Cybermen you are insisting on and along. So one guy uh, attacks the Cyberman, and uh, he gets shot. Cyberman reports to his ship that Operational System 2 is complete, uh, which is a fancy way, apparently, of saying Phase 2. And the ship tells him to start Operational System 3. The Cyberman says to the doctor, You are known to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have, uh, as we previously noted, they, they have voices that are not an improvement. They're just mm. these deep, uh, synthesized, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've seen the original Battlestar Galactica, but right. I'm thinking the Cylons oh, very spoke similar. something yeah, like Yeah, very this. similar. Though in this case, the Cylons you can understand. In this case, there are actually lines that are very hard to understand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was various audio, not just by the Cybermen. But, and, and it wasn't that the audio was fuzzy so much as uh, it was just maybe not enunciated well enough. And, and I'm, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not hard of hearing, but I'm hard of deciphering sometimes, if that makes any sense. So, uh, yeah, so some of the lines in this were, were difficult uh, for me to make out. So that's why, you know, some of these quotes, I actually went to the Chrissy's transcript site, you know, and went through the script and so forth. But I did watch the shows <laughs> dutifully. <laughs> so the doctor uh, and the Cyberman are known to each other. And somehow, you know, the, it's interesting that even though the doctor has changed form since they saw him last, they they saw him in the, in the Hartnell form uh, last time we met them. Uh, or didn't they? I think that's the case, uh, isn't well, it? Or, yes, yeah. unless they stuck around to the end of the episode, but they were pretty much supposed to be oh, dead at that was, point. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. That's one of those, uh, you know, and it happens with the uh, Daleks and stuff too, right, is occasionally they'll sort of recognize a new version of the Doctor. Um, yeah, somebody else has said that, I think, to this Doctor yeah. already. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, anyway, the Cybermen recognize him somehow. The Cyberman tells everybody that the the men who fell ill, they're not dead. They're altered, he says. They're now controlled, which doesn't sound much better than being dead. In fact, one of the characters remarks on that later on when when we see that they're actually up and walking around, but they're basically zombies. But we'll get to that. The Cyberman uh, says that Jamie has not received Neurotrope X, which is the black veiny virus, but Polly says that his head is hurt, uh, so have mercy. Uh, she's just she's just trying to beg for mercy. She doesn't realize that bringing up this uh, defect, as the Cybermen see it, uh, would actually deter them. And the Cyberman basically says, "Well, he's useless to us then," mm-hmm. so he just uh, passes out over Jamie. But uh, so I'm not sure if it was other Cybermen who retreat were trying to get him previously and recognized that his head was injured. Or what, but uh, this is yet another reason not to try to control Jamie at this point. 
A cyberman uh, orders Hobson to take him to the control room, and he tells the others to stay in the sick bay or be converted. I don't know why he gives him a choice. Maybe it's just there's a lot to do and he's on a schedule, so that's probably the best explanation I can come up with. The three moon base guys, meanwhile, are in the Cybermen spaceship, and they, uh, they're they being converted now. Now that they've uh, got this neurotrope X running through their veins and all that, next step is to turn them into zombies in the service of the Cybermen. In the control room, Hobson goes in with the Cyberman and the doctor. Uh, Cyberman tells everyone that they'll remain still, or if they move, they'll be killed. Then he goes on to explain his plans exactly, which is uh, very helpful. He says, we're going to take over the Gravitron and use it to destroy the surface of the Earth by changing the weather. <laughs> and the doctor replies, but that will kill everybody on the Earth. And the Cyberman confirms that that is, in fact, what, uh, what will happen. <laughs> and Hobson accuses the Cyberman. Uh, he says that they're taking revenge like children. You know, they... They they present themselves as such superior beings, but now they're just like petty little kids. The Cyberman doesn't know the word revenge, which seems unlikely, but uh, <laughs> there you have it. Hobson explains that it's a feeling, and that explains why the Cyberman doesn't know the word, because it's a weakness, and the Cybermen don't have feelings. <laughs> so from there, uh, Benoit, the number two, who to this point has displayed... No signs at all of being a traitor looking to usurp his boss's position. And it turns out that's exactly what he is. He's just a loyal guy trying to do his job. Mm -hmm. He asks why the Cybermen are here, and their explanation is to eliminate all dangers. <laughs> and when Hobson counters that they'll kill every living thing on the Earth, the Cybermen reply, yes, all dangers will be eliminated. <laughs> And and I I took I, I made a note of all these lines because they're just amusing. Not to mention giving a window into the Cyberman psyche. Also, uh, I don't remember if we talked. I don't think we talked about this on the Tenth Planet. But the Cybermen are absolutely the precursor to Star Trek's Borg, right? I mean, the, you know, because and more and more develops, and we see it in this story, right? Uh, the Cybermen are about incorporate turning people into Cybermen, right? And the Borg was about turning you into the Borg, right, and it being a collective and everything. And the Borg was a bunch of people walking around with parts of their body being mechanical and parts of it being flesh. And so, you know, I haven't, like, read about this or anything, but it's almost impossible to think that when they came up with the Borg that they didn't know about the Cybermen, right? Yeah, yeah, it could be. I don't know a lot about the Borg. I did see a Star Trek movie that had uh, Alice Krieg in it playing, like, the queen mm -hmm. of the Borg or something. I always had a crush on her when she was in Ghost Story way back when. <laughs> uh, but anyway, she, uh, she, as I remember it, but this was like a decade or more ago that I saw the movie probably, but she, uh, she struck me as having something of a personality in that movie, though I could just be, that could well, just be wishful thinking. Right. I mean, they're always going to have you know, imputing, uh, especially when they have a leader or whatever. I mean, and, it's something we'll see with the Daleks and other things in, in the evolution of Doctor Who, which is you often start off with this amorphous, you know, species and then frequently come up with, and we'll even see it in the next Cybermen story, the spoiler, um, 
a, a figurehead who can be the leader and have some personality that you can interact with, right? And on the one hand, I think it's sort of necessary over time. You can't constantly, you can't over the decades have just this generic species that all has one personality like the Daleks. On the other hand, once you humanize it, once you have a leader and all that, it takes away from some of the, um, you know, the, the creepiness or the evilness or, or whatever of, of the species as a whole. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Unless, I suppose, that uh, warmth or whatever turns out to be just a ruse that's just <laughs> to suck you in mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, draw you into the trap. But that's a, a digression, I guess. Anyway, I had one more quote from the Cyberman here. Benoit asks, have you no mercy? And Cyberman says, it is unnecessary. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a pretty good summation of uh, where the Cybermen are at right now. So, at this point, one of the Cybermen reports that Operational System 4 is complete. So, they're making good progress. And then uh, they do something interesting. They, they explain... Uh, that they tunneled under the storeroom and they contaminated, contaminated the food. That's how they got into the moon base. And then, uh, now, you could interpret this two ways. One of the characters then uh, says, oh, that's why we were getting those drops in the pressure readings. Mm -hmm. And then the Cyberman says, clever, clever, clever. And, you know, at first I thought, oh, well, he's actually acknowledging that the human twigged to that, and that's a... Uh, uh, praising the human, but no, I think the Cyberman is praising his own himself and his Cyberman race <laughs> for their cleverness, which could uh, be a weakness of sorts. <laughs> well, yeah, so I think you're right. I interpreted it also originally as he was saying somehow that the that the guy was clever, but especially later in the last episode, they're like, "Humans are stupid. You're stupid." So. <laughs> Uh, I think <laughs> um, it kind of make it clear, like only a stupid person would have fell for this. Like, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So back in the sick bay, Jamie is mostly recovered now, but he has a sore head, uh, understandably, since he had a concussion. Ben and Polly tell him they've seen these guys, the Cybermen, before, and they know that their weakness is radiation. Uh, and Jamie says something that, um, actually, as soon as he said it, I knew this was going to be the seed of an idea for somebody. Uh, he says, well, in my day, they used to sprinkle witches with holy water. Uh, and sure enough, this gives Polly an idea. Um, the Cybermen are mostly metal coated, uh, but they have plastic chest plates and she knows that nail polish remover, or as the British call it, nail varnish remover, uh, it eats through plastic. So she's going to try and experiment. But before we see that, we cut back to the control room. And the controlled guys, the zombies, they return, escorted by Cybermen. And uh, they're sent into the Gravitron chamber, the, the area where you actually control the great big gravity gun pointed at Earth. Um, Benoit protests. Uh, they, they've got to wear their lumpy foam rubber helmets because uh, those are to protect them from sonic fields. Uh, you know, let the guys put their, put their helmets on. Because mm -hmm. um, if the sonic fields get to them, it's going to take around 12 hours for them to go insane. 
And the Cyberman replies, eh, no problem, we'll be done by then. <laughs> <laughs> also, these phone, these helmets, are they're, they're shower caps. <laughs> oh, could, are they? Okay. Well, I'm not saying they are in reality. I'm saying that's the oh, only yeah, way yeah. I could I mean, that, them. It was, you know. they, they do look like that. And they also look like that. Um, to me, they look like. Sometimes when you when you get things packed in foam rubber, it has like the little spiky mountains in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know; it's hard to describe, but it's got like these rounded spikes coming out of it, and then it's got uh, depressions, and and so they sort of fit together. Like if you have two panels of them, you can fit the spikes on one side into the depressions mm-hmm. on the other side. Anyway, that's what it reminds me of, but a little more flexible than that. Uh, but yeah, they're just, um, they're, they're kind of goofy looking, <laughs> however you slice it. The Cybermen say, uh, well, we'll be done by then and the men will be disposed of. So it's not going to end well, probably, for these controlled guys mm-hmm. if the Cybermen keep up what they're doing. And then the doctor furtively fiddles with one of the control knobs in the control room. Uh, he's sort of, he's ducked behind a bank of equipment, sort of. He's kind of, uh, you know, the Cybermen know he's somewhere around, but they're not paying much attention to him at the moment, it seems. Uh, so he gets to sneak around a little bit, and he can futz with the controls when he wants to. Yeah, which is, um, which is this doctor's trope, right? He always solves the problem by screwing with the control panel. <laughs> yeah, cutting the wires, something mm-hmm. like that, yeah. <laughs> So back in the sick bay, we see Polly's experiment. She she finds some acetone, which is the active ingredient in a nail polish remover, uh, and she uses it to dissolve a piece of plastic almost instantly. And I, I don't think it works that way in real life. I think you'd be like, you know, put a piece of plastic into a jar of acetone when you go to bed, and then when you get up <laughs> in the morning, it'll be mostly dissolved, maybe. Something like that. I could be wrong, uh, but... I don't think it's that fast acting, mm-hmm. but here it works. Maybe it's the low gravity on the moon or something. And so they make a, a right old cocktail, as they call it, of several solvents, uh, acetone, benzene, ether, alcohol. And I think later on they mentioned some kind of epoxy that also they And this is where, you know, is my, my thing at the beginning. It's like they're literally just tossing every chemical they find together. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to go well at some point. Yeah. And then these solvents, I mean, by their nature, they, they're quick evaporating. So uh, if there are any dangerous fumes to be released, uh, it's not going to take a long time right. to, and they're in a very happen. enclosed uh you know um, oxygen oh, yeah. And all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah and the air is probably being recycled yeah. so everybody on the station might get a dose yeah. other than that though great plan i like <laughs> yeah. it who knows it might even get you high it's uh you never know the uh ben has an idea for delivering the mixture uh but before we can see what that idea is we cut back to the control room and we see the doctor secretly fiddle with the knob again. And the uh, Cybermen talk amongst themselves because that change in sound, the knob that he's chosen is changing one of the atmospheric environmental sounds to a different pitch. And that change is making the men who are controlled, the zombies, it's making them screw up. They're losing their concentration, coordination, whatever. 
So he's hit on something here. And then the next thing, uh, maybe a little bit of a stretch, the doctor does some thinking out loud, but very quietly, just to himself. He's trying to conclude something besides radiation that maybe the Cybermen don't like. Uh, and finally, uh, through leaps of logic that I don't quite understand, he concludes they don't like gravity. So I don't know exactly how he got that, uh, considering they seem to be able to walk around just mm -hmm. fine and tunnel through the earth or through the moon and so forth. But, uh, but that's the conclusion he reaches, and he's the doctor, so he probably knows something we don't. And at this moment... Cybermen are just about ready to use the Gravitron to do evil things, but the Earth suddenly calls up the base, and the Cybermen tell everyone to stay quiet. Uh, they don't want to transmit anything back to Earth. Earth says, if you can hear us but not transmit, send up a sodium rocket. And Hobson uh, has a little clever gambit here. He tells the Cybermen, yeah, the Cybermen ask him, what will happen if uh, if we don't transmit anything, yeah, or if we don't send up a flare? He tells the Cybermen, if there's no flare, people back on Earth are just going to assume they've all died, and so they'll do nothing. Which, <laughs> uh, and the Cybermen buy it, because that's what the Cybermen would do, I presume. Mm -hmm. But then he whispers to Benoit that Earth will actually send up a relief rocket. And I, I had a note here that I thought there was supposed to be one on the way anyhow. But, uh, uh, well, if I mean, it, it was supposed to be in a couple of weeks, and I think the idea here is that if they haven't heard from them, they'll they would send it up sooner, uh, to uh, see what's going on. Okay, so, uh, back in the sick bay, now we see Ben's big idea for using this miracle, uh, elixir, uh, and it's a spray bottle, and to me, it looks like a plastic spray bottle. Now, this is another animated episode, so, uh, who knows, it could be milk glass or something, but it looks like just a plastic spray bottle. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's special plastic, too, I don't know. But uh, still taking a chance, I would think, putting that stuff in there. But that's what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. At first, it's Ben and Polly who are going to go perform the attack, but then after some talk, the men are going to go, and they're going to do the men's work, as they call <laughs> it. Now, this, this Polly might legitimately take offense to, yeah. a little bit at least. They're going to leave Polly behind. But when they get into the hallway, Polly comes along and insists on joining them. So they relent. And Ben explains the plan, which is drop down as low as you can, aim these things at their chests, and squirt like mad. <laughs> which uh, sounds like, uh, well, never mind. <laughs> Something uh, of questionable taste. <laughs> never mind. In the control room, the Cybermen hear a noise outside, which is their doom approaching, but the doctor distracts them by adjusting the sound knob again. And uh, the solvent spray works on the Cybermen. I would say it works ridiculously quickly on the Cybermen, but that's just my own prejudice. I've never actually squirted a Cyberman <laughs> with this <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I'm not going to let you finish that sentence. Yet, but anyway, so, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I will say that it, the effect it has on them is pretty gruesome. And I believe I've heard that from people who actually saw the, you know, non-animated one that it was there too. And they were kind of worried that maybe it was too much. Because basically, you know, you're kind of seeing it 
in a way, it's got sort of, you know, dissolving. I mean, it's just like oh. the stuff just coming out of the, you know, coming out of the, the chest thing, uh, foam or whatever. Oh. Um, no kidding. But, Interesting. Um, I know it's, uh, I mean, it's. It's dramatic just in the animation, but it's mostly a lot of foam, yeah. as I remember it. But it works, and uh, all the Cybermen in, in this control room are dead now. <laughs> and the men who were under control, they're taken back to the sick bay. So the Earth's not in immediate danger anymore, so that's good. Uh, back on the Cybermen spaceship, uh, the people there, the Cybermen there, have lost communication with the Cybermen in the base. So they reasonably assume that those guys have been killed somehow, so they plan to invade the base. In the control room, Benoit says there's been no contact with the men who are outside fixing the antenna, so he'll go himself. Uh, and outside, he finds them, and he reports that he's found their suits, uh, but the Cybermen apparently got them uh, for their little control scheme. Although, uh, Hmm, if he just found the suits, I don't know how the Cybermen would get the guys back to their ship without them dying. Uh, but <laughs> Yeah, I think they no. just want the drama here. As I recall, I believe this is the writer repeating himself from the 10th planet. Because remember, again, there, instead of the moon, we had uh, the North Pole or whatever. It was extremely cold and, uh. and windy. And they there were two guys outside, and they find their jackets. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the exact same point, you know, <laughs> here. Yeah. So Hobson tells Benoit over the radio, come back at once. But now that one of the Cybermen is on Benoit's tail, wow. uh, the Cyberman, uh, tries shooting at him. Now, this is one of the things that was really unclear in the, in the animation, uh, partly because of the audio. You see the Cyberman's finger on the trigger, and he's trying to shoot this guy, and nothing's happening. Uh, what the script says is in the audio is that uh, the weapon doesn't work in a vacuum. And I tried, I actually went back and I repeated this audio a few times, and I, I still couldn't make head or tail of it. So, And it's not, I don't know if it, it's not garbled. It's not muted or anything. It's just, I, I, for, for me, it was unintelligible, indecipherable for some reason. Well, I do, I, my recollection is, I think he says something like, oh, it doesn't work in this vacuum or something. So they kind of say it. Although plot-wise, it's convenient for Benoit to live because it's not like the Cybermen don't understand no um, environment. And, and it's not like, as we'll see, they don't have guns that work. <laughs> uh, in yeah. uh, so I think, uh, uh, the script wanted Benoit to live. <laughs> yeah. A little plot armor. Sure. Yeah. So back inside, Ben is filling a bottle with this magic elixir solvent. He can't use a spray bottle. He says, because it would evaporate in the vacuum before it hits them. And I, I'm not sure how much sense that makes. Maybe, maybe it would. I, I don't know. I'm not a science guy, but, uh, uh, it seems unlikely to me, but I, I could be wrong. But anyway, he's filling a bottle with the solvent, and apparently it was the right thing to do because, uh, as we'll find out momentarily, Benoit runs back to the airlock with the Cyberman. <laughs> In the animation, the Cyberman's just sort of shuffling like Michael Myers behind mm. him. He's not in any hurry. He's just 
Yeah, going at his own pace. Ben emerges from the airlock, and he throws the bottle at the Cyberman, and we don't get to see what the bottle actually does in this animation. We don't know if it breaks and splashes the guy, or if it just uh, happens to hit the guy with an open mouth, uh, on you know, with the mouth of the bottle uncapped or something. But however it happens, uh, the Cyberman gets splashed with a lot of this solvent, and the Cyberman dies actually foaming at the mouth. So that stuff has has really absorbed mm-hmm. well. But yeah, it was it was kind of a uh, I don't know, kind of a ripoff. I thought that we didn't get to see how that bottle worked because it didn't look like a bottle that would break easily. I don't know. Just go with it, I guess. <laughs> uh, back in the control room, now they've got a uh, got a fix on the uh, on the parked ship. They think they've identified where it's at. Uh, the doctor asks Hobson how low they can aim the probe, which I think he's talking about the gravitron here, uh, because if they'll do that again in the next episode. Ask about the gravitron. Right. But I, I well, I, I think probably the way I would read it is that the graviton is a larger system here and the thing that we see is you know the pointing part of it right the uh so uh that's that's the way i interpret it you know oh okay but uh hobson says it can only go down to 30 degrees elevation which is too high to aim at something that's parked right on the moon's surface um, so this is a callback for me because i just edited and released uh our discussion of invaders of mars or the mars uh, yeah i think it's whichever way it was. Uh, and part of what we talked about in there was they had these amazing telescopes that they could, you know, look into space and they could also look into like Billy's backyard and see. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, it's kind of humorous that here they make a point of it. Like, Oh, we can't drop it that low. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Hobson scans the horizon with a handheld telescope. Uh, and after a bit of looking, he finds the uh, the Cybermen saucer, uh, and he also finds that there is a whole platoon of Cybermen emerging from it, and uh, it looks pretty daunting. So how's the doctor going to get out of this one? That's the cliffhanger this time. <laughs> uh, and I think, and, and we, well, we'll see in the next, uh, which is the live action, but there's one part coming up that that has been voted by some pe- people the silliest moment in Doctor Who, um, but <laughs> this uh, has been voted as one of the best uh, cliffhangers. Just and I think it's because, and we'll see it later in in the, the next one where we can see it live. When you have like a couple dozen of them coming towards you on a relatively good looking moon surface, right? I mean, obviously it's like mm-hmm. a painting behind them and everything, but still, it's 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 a pretty good environment. It is, you know, it's pretty striking. And with them going in sort of slow motion and everything, yeah. Yeah, I'll give them credit for that. It's uh, there, there, as George Clooney uh, would say in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? uh, We're in a tight spot. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, episode four, and, you know, I mentioned before they're doing small sets, but the first three episodes, they, they had a larger set available. The fourth episode, they got moved to like the smallest BBC set. And so they're really trying to find the shots here. But we start out, and in, in this case, instead of seeing the full bodies of the Cybermen, we just see their feet walking by, all these different, you know, feet and legs walking by as we 
have the credits and stuff. And uh, again, it's pretty right. effective because you got it, it implies a lot of people. The only thing that was a little uh, marring here uh, is that clearly, so they're walking on dirt, but the dirt is clearly on top of like pads, and so. As they're walking, when they bring their foot up, the pad comes up, right? So the dirt pops back up. So that was a little uh, that was a little funky, but but you can you could easily miss it because you know it's a kind of dramatic shot. Yeah, I uh, I, I did miss it, but I mean, isn't the moon uh, largely covered by a layer of dust anyway? Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering if maybe that might uh, seem. I mean, if you saw somebody doing it on Earth, maybe it would look less realistic if, <laughs> than if you're, they're supposed to be on the moon. But, uh, we'll but I didn't notice it at any, at any event, so good for them. So in the main room of the base, the doctor asks if the Cybermen can get in. And this is one of those dorky TV serial moments because Hobson says, not now that you found how they were getting in. And the doctor says, apparently not remembering what happened five minutes ago, Oh, yes, they were tunneling into the storeroom. <laughs> it's like, obviously, this is to, for some reason, they felt it was important to tell people watching this episode who hadn't, you know, seen anything since last week, what was going on. But in real yeah. life, you know, <laughs> this is a sign of dementia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I can forgive stuff like this because it is you know, the way they produce the show. They got to have an episode a week or whatever. Uh, you know, if anything, so. to their to their credit, at least for those of us watching it now, they, except for the 30 seconds at the beginning or whatever that kind of reprises the cliffhanger, they don't really retell the story in these. I mean, they could do it much more, especially for, for a children's yeah, show. Yeah, they, 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 they try to keep people up to date, but they very rarely do it in a heavy-handed way. So, uh, yeah, they're pretty good with that. Okay, so let's see. So the Cybermen broadcast on the base's frequency, and they tell them that all resistance is useless, so they've got to let them in. And the engineers try to reach Earth, but there's a blast of sound that indicates that the Cybermen are jamming the frequency. And meanwhile, they see two Cybermen doing a slow-motion destruction of that antenna that had caused problems earlier. Uh, but the engineers are really pretty jovial. Everything's going to be fine. Because we mentioned earlier, given the lack of communication, a rescue rocket's going to be on the way anytime now. But the doctor points out the Cybermen must know that as well. And uh, indeed, we see a Cyberman inside their spaceship being told about an incoming Earth rocket. Then on the surface, a Cyberman uses that control box sonar thingy or sound thingy <laughs> to transmit a control signal, which causes Evans, the staff doctor, to wake up and put the electrode things on his head. And then he knocks yeah, out which, the engineer in the room. Which makes you wonder, why do you need the electrode things if you can just do that? <laughs> it, it probably enhances it or something. Um, and then, but you want you want a weird moment here, which also is probably hurt by being a small set, right? Like I think the idea was he was supposed to sneak into the main area and be hiding somewhere, right? Mm. But he's just standing in the middle of the room and and with veins and uh, all over his face and the and the control unit on his head, and nobody notices yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody's got a lot of stuff on their mind right now. The thing is, unlike, you know, some things like you know, debate whether the, you know, the dirt on the moon would act that way or not, this actually confuses the story a bit because, like, they're, like are they think he's okay? Because it's so, like he's just in the middle of the room. But uh, yeah, he then sneaks into the control room and knocks out the guy in there and puts on his shower cap. And 
I guess a little famous moment. He puts it on backwards on the next shot. It's, it's the next time we see him, he's got it on the right way around. But <laughs> uh, then the release ship is spotted coming in on the scanner, and and what they do here to make this work is, you know, they have a radar like thing where you're just seeing a blip of light against the starfield, and that's supposed to be the incoming spaceship. And it's coming in, and they're all happy, but then it sort of bounces off of something. And, and there's another funny thing for this being written by a scientist, right? It is put on a trajectory, which means no matter what they do, they're going to land in the sun. <laughs> so, yeah. they got a long time to think and about that, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, there's some dialogue here that uh, I don't remember the exact wording of it, but it really uh, it struck me as pseudoscience i guess yeah, they were say. Um, they were plastering that, it over right because she's like well won't they have a yeah. long time he's like well sorry once you get into the, the sort of the groove yeah, you know it was the <laughs> the the sun's gravity belt yeah, yeah. i think it was and i was like no that's that i mean we're in orbit around the sun <laughs> yeah. we haven't been sucked in by the gravity belt just yet yeah but oh well <laughs> poor guys <laughs> they're gonna have a long time to know what's happening Oh, there's another weird thing, which is clearly just how small this set was. They have three engineers standing there talking as the ship is coming in and then getting bounced off and everything. And one of them is yelling as if he's sitting at a console doing controls. You know, I can't get it. Oh, I'm trying to get it. But he's just standing there next to the other two yelling that <laughs> he has no controls or console. And I think it's just another case where they, <laughs> they had nowhere to put him, right? They couldn't. They needed to show these other two guys. And they didn't have space, so they just had him standing there yelling, oh, I've almost got it. No, he got away. <laughs> uh, yeah. he's, he's doing it on his iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they realized that the rocket was deflected, and the doctor points out that could only have been done with the Gravitron from this very room. And that's when they discovered that Evans is in the control room, so he made this thing happen. Mm. And the doctor tells Jamie and Ben to get to the sick bay to keep anyone else there from getting, you know, taken over again. Uh, too late, though. We see the remaining patients getting up and walking in the line. Uh, but Jamie and Ben are standing guard outside the door, and they grab a metal stretcher, and as one of the patients tries to exit, they smash him back in. Uh, and then we see, I think, the same guy using some kind of metal implement to force the door open. Um, but now we're back in the main control room, and apparently they can't get into the smaller control room. So Hobson is trying to talk Evans back into being a human because it looks like Evans is going to flood half of Europe. And uh, they get another broadcast from the Cybermen telling them that all ships will be deflected. And and then everyone starts choking because a hole has been blown in the side of the glass dome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and instantly, I mean, you know, the oxygen's being sucked out through the hole, and it's like, you know, three seconds and everybody's asphyxiating. <laughs> right. Uh so Hobson, an engineer, have the brilliant idea of taking Hobson's lab coat and, and stuffing it in there. And actually, to the show's credit, that lasts about two seconds and then it yeah. gets pulled out. <laughs> but then we get to the point I mentioned earlier, which some people have voted as the silliest, either silliest moment or silliest solution in Doctor Who, which is they use a glass coffee tray to plug the hole. <laughs> you know, and thankfully in 2070, they have very robust glass coffee trays. <laughs> Now, see, that's one of the things that didn't bug me much in this episode. I mean, why wouldn't they make the coffee tray out of the same material they made the windows out of? That's uh, 
<laughs> that only makes sense. Well, first of all, I think it's funny that you're, uh, you know, yeah, the thing everybody else uh, doesn't like about the story is uh, the thing that you find acceptable. But it also reminds <laughs> me, back in the Clinton Gore days, uh, Gore was a little bit famous for going on the um, uh, David Letterman show and talking about how ridiculous it was that there was like a seven hundred dollar ashtray or something for submarines oh yeah broke it apart. yeah the miramar bolt and all of, yeah and so they know if know, that was and he like right, smashed yeah. apart the ashtray there as part of his little point in demo and then later i mean i read and there were people who said you need to understand like an ashtray or anything else in a submarine has to be precisely designed to not like you know, help destroy the submarine, kind of like we're talking about. You're saying, oh, yeah. like your point yeah. here, like, you know, they might need that ashtray to plug a hole. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there there was a movie, I'm, I'm thinking it was Apollo 13, where the the whole movie was about there's a disaster, and right. then it's and based on story, fact, yeah. where there's a, yeah, and they had to cobble together some solution just with what they knew was in the inventory yeah. on the Yeah, I remember spaceship. that. And they, they dump on a table all the stuff, including like socks and everything else they can think of. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, you may be right. This uh, Everyone else may be wrong, and this may not be <laughs> the silliest one. <laughs> uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it with every coffee tray, but, uh, you know, yeah. there's no reason to think that that particular one might not have been up to the task. <laughs> so once the hole is plugged, Polly realizes that suddenly it's very quiet, and the doctor realizes the graviton is off. Evans has been knocked out. They take Evans away, and the doctor realizes that a laser was used to puncture the dome. It actually, with what with with the damage you see to the dome, it would not be a laser. It was very irregular and stuff. But okay, for you know, we'll, yeah, maybe it's a different kind of laser or something. Um, <laughs> it's a laser with a rock attached to it, and. Here we get, you know, it's just, uh, and I have some affection for this story. I mean, maybe less, you know, watching it more recently. But I have some affection for the story, mostly because I remember the Cybermen, you know, bouncing around on the, the moon and, you know, and the, you know, the, the bunch of Cybermen coming toward them and all that that we talked about being a pretty compelling shot. But here, it's really disappointing because they can do better than this. So they have two different spaceship land right after each other, Cybermen spaceship. <laughs> and this is so bad. It's literally like... The test shot, right? Because it's like somebody just threw a plate in and the plate fell down and they just left it there. And not only that, but it's either this or, or, or another shot. Um, they lower them down on wires and it's like they wait until you can see the wire because in each case there's a point where oh, the yeah. light hits the wire. They could have, in that case where I think, you know, they didn't just throw it in and pull down. They could have simply caught, cut the shot you know, a few frames earlier and, and, and maybe held one of the other ones or something and you wouldn't have seen the wire, but they let it go. Now, of course we know 1967 TVs and all that, maybe you couldn't see them, but these are, these yeah. are the definition of bad, you know, fifties, uh, as he said, two plate, <laughs> two plates, uh, <laughs> flying saucers, uh, with no, no attempt to make them work. And I, I can only assume yeah. that the special effects people had zero time for this or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Zero time, zero budget, something like that. Yeah, I I did notice those wires. Yeah. <laughs> it, it may be that the time and effort went into, like, the wire work to get people, you know, bouncing around on the planet and everything. And, you know, some, and I can understand that. But um, mm -hmm. anyway, it's embarrassing. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I do like this part now. On the surface, we see several Cybermen, and they've got a big, it's like a, you know, a big wood, you know, Amazon delivery box or something, and they're unpacking it, uh, and it's got this huge um, gun in it. It's a, it turns out to be a laser gun, and it takes like four of them or something to, you know, pick it up. And uh, and meanwhile, on the radio, the Cyberman is taunting the humans for being stupid. Only stupid people could fall for this, you know, so. <laughs> this is where it's kind of like, okay. This is you know, a bit. Isn't there a line, and I haven't seen it for years, but Plan 9 from Outer Space yeah, yeah. isn't one well, of the bad guys. You're a stupid mind, <laughs> stupid. <laughs> well, and here I feel like, you know, if you want to gain a reputation as a terrifying race, sometimes keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes silent is, silence is intimidating in its own way. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so Hobson realizes that, you know, they're unpacking this huge gun and he tells everyone to hit the deck. Now the doctor is standing there while everyone else gets down and he tells them to get down and the doctor says, is the Graviton st switched on now? And they say, yes. And he says, well, then I shall stand here. And he's being very, you know, stubborn and heroic. And the Cybermen fire and um, they, ac they actually use, um, well, so first of all, as I said, it's kind of like three or four of them are holding this thing to, to make it work. Uh, and this is the first laser animation ever done in Doctor Who. So we get a little, you know, no. you know, and that's where you basically have to hand draw the thing. And mm. it it bounces off the dome because it turns out the Gravitron is deflecting the laser just like they deflected the spaceship. Uh, <laughs> and, and now this is this this is what really cracks me up, right? So they don't they don't like bitch or get pissed off or whatever. They just turn around and and carefully start packing up the laser. It's like they got you know they're going to return it <laughs> to Amazon and they want to make sure that the packaging is. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the benefit of not having feelings. <laughs> uh, so the doctor now has a plan to use the graviton to defeat the Cybermen. And he has them move the probe dangerously low. <laughs> we already talked about this, pointing toward the surface, while a legion of Cybermen slowly walk towards the base. So essentially, we get one of these shots again. Again, pretty good shot. There's probably a couple dozen yeah. people there, um, you know. And, and I think that the fact that they're walking moon gravity slow really, uh, you know, makes it a more impactful shot. But they can't get the graviton to go low enough, so the doctor and Hobson are literally kind of jumping on the thing and trying to, you know, point go further down. <laughs> this is a bizarre story point because, on the one hand, this story point totally makes sense, but it's just weird that they spent time on it. So Hobson realizes, wait, there's an angular cutout that prevents this from going too low, so we wouldn't accidentally hurt the base. And he then goes and turns off the angular cutout. And you know, I mean. Yeah, there's a little safety feature that blocks the right. how low you come. Right. Yeah. And, and even this, the name for it makes sense. I'm sure he took it from something real, right? You can imagine that it's, mm -hmm. that it's this cutout that keeps uh, some piece of metal from moving or something like that. Um, right. I just thought it was and, very strange know, to spend 20 seconds on this. But <laughs> you know, I, I gave this a few minutes more thought than it deserved i think uh, it was one of those things that just sort of pops into your head when you're better know, sitting on the toilet or something but it uh i was thinking of you remember in one of our early podcast episodes we talked about that scene in the china syndrome with jack lemon mm -hmm. and wilford brimley and I, I remember thinking of that and thinking how even though everything was going to hell around them 
you you at least I got the impression from that scene that these characters really knew their stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they knew if you do this to this system, you know, you flip this switch, these are what the consequences are going to be. Not just to immediately, but the second order effects mm-hmm. and third order and so on. And uh, it just it struck me as funny that the guy who's like the head scientist here. Uh, although he is a, an administrator, so in that respect, you couldn't expect him to know everything about the technology, except he's already been presented to us as a guy who really knows the mm. technology. And it just seemed funny to me that he's like practically slapping himself on the forehead. And says, oh, I could have had a V8. <laughs> oh, here, that's the angular cutout. <laughs> yeah. So it, it seems like something that would have occurred to him earlier. But, right. Uh, Again, that's that is overthinking it, and I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he disables the cutout, and so they're able to get the the gravitron to go lower, and the Cybermen start losing their gravity. So you tell me, gravitron, and I kind of think it means there's going to be more gravity, but apparently, in this case, they <laughs> may they reverse the polarity or something, and uh, they just start getting flung off the moon. Right, so you got these. <laughs> kind of fun little shots where they're just being pulled off the moon. And, and even the spaceship like, just gets flung off. And it's actually, uh, well, the, the men getting, you know, the Cybermen getting getting tossed around looks pretty good. But the spaceships, this is the one that really offended me. This is where it's just like <laughs> breakfast plates being t- thrown. They don't slow it down. They don't, you know, it's just, okay, we got five minutes to get this shot. Somebody throw a plate. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and you see, if I remember right, you see both of the spaceships individually getting affected by it, you know, and one of them, like, sort of lifts a little, then hesitates, then it's like, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, danger averted. Finally, I guess Hobson got to see some people get off the moon. <laughs> so, uh, and he now gets everyone working on getting the base running again, and... It's one of those cases where the doctor and the crew quietly disappear in the background and the, uh, uh the old Irish goodbye. Yeah. Which I'm famous for <laughs> at parties and stuff. I just, you know, I, I'm an introvert and I will just run out and I, I know that I offend people, but I will just disappear from a party because I can't be oh, there yeah. anymore. I've been known either. to do that myself. So and, don't, but don't I have had to learn. Here's the it. thing though, that I've had to learn in my fifties is, I, <laughs> is when there are people who really know you and care about you, they're really offended if you don't say goodbye or whatever and you just disappear. So I've, I have had to grow, yeah. some, uh, grow some maturity in that space. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, although sometimes they just get used to it and they're like, oh, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. So they, you know, they're in their spaceships again and we get to see the helmets fogging up and then Polly sees a comet-looking thing, again, really bad effect, awkwardly moving away, and apparently it's the Cybermen ship, and it's it's really badly done, um, which, again, aside for us, is humorous to me, because I basically did that exact same shot, the comet going with the moon, and that, and, and my <laughs> shot looks good. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so in the TARDIS, you know, the Doctor decides, uh, for no particular reason, it's time to use the time mm-hmm. scanner. I don't think we've ever heard of the time scanner before. We did have that machine they had for a little <laughs> bit where they could see things. 
Yeah, there was some kind of yeah. thing that Hardin had, but I, that was used once in a blue moon, right. I think maybe two or three times. Yeah, and, and I, it couldn't technically go in the future. Well, I mean, you know, but I think you can only see things in their present without, but the time scanner allows you to look into the future and uh, Polly points at the monitor and does a female Doctor Who scream, <laughs> but... I can't tell why, because what we see on the monitor is a delicious giant lobster leg and claw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be, you know, some kid's pet hermit crab. We don't know. <laughs> it's the end of the episode. And this has actually always been kind of mysterious because there's nothing left of this story. And what these claw creatures looked like and everything has actually been kind of up for up for debate. Um but um, we'll get to that in a moment. So, uh, I mean, you know, we didn't leave much uh, hidden here, uh, many of our cards hidden here. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> you liked, you know, you you liked the forehead of the Cybermen better, but not much else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything from the forehead up is really well designed, I thought. I was impressed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I have to say I was... Angry wouldn't be the right word, but I was annoyed uh, by by what the experience of watching through the show. But having talked about it now for roughly two hours, uh, actually made me a little more fond of it. I'm still not going to go so far as to give it my worth watching <laughs> stamp of approval, but uh, it's not without a few charms here and there um but uh it wouldn't be in one of my personal uh high points well i i think we're probably exercising a gravitational pull on each other which is you know for me there's some nostalgia here which is kind of wiped away a little bit by watching it and really you know thinking about it and seeing some of the really bad shots because again i just all i remember from seeing it like years ago is oh there's some fun you know bouncing around on the earth and i I've even thought it would be fun in terms of recreating it um, with the Lego stuff or whatever to to do that. Mm, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, there, you know, it's it's not a great one, and I and I think especially when you compare this to Power of the Daleks, which uh, I think was a really good Dalek episode, and it had some really interesting character moments. You know, especially uh, my favorite of the the scientist is going bonkers and you know, becoming a, Oh you know, yeah. He, he basically becomes a, I am your servant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he fetishizes them and, and all this. So like you look at that and yeah, it wasn't the best story for the doctors. He didn't have a lot to do in it and everything, but, um, uh, but there was just a lot of really interesting moments, right. And the Daleks were really interesting in how calculating they were and how deceitful they were and all this. And yeah, here it's, uh, and, and I think when I did some reading on the reaction to it and people were kind of like, well, these are not really scary people, or, you know, the robots and, and all this, but uh, we're going to, you know, they do become one of the, one of the standards in Doctor Who, so we'll get many more opportunities to see. Oh, yeah. And there is, uh, there is an upcoming story that I like quite a lot uh, that involves them. So hopefully, hopefully they'll be redeemed for you too. <laughs> all right. And, and, you know, it occurs to me, one thing that is kind of nice about this story arc, although maybe it doesn't make for the most exciting bit of twists and turns, uh, is that everybody in the moon base was just a genuinely yeah. decent 
worker. You know, they did their job. They got along. We're trying to stab each other in <laughs> okay. the back. And... Yeah. That, in that way, this base is entirely the opposite of the base on in The Power of the Daleks, right? Where everybody was stabbing <laughs> everybody in the back. And nobody... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, yeah, I guess when you're... Gonna try when you're trying to find a place to work, you might want to look into a few of these things. <laughs> um, and you know, let's see, we have our companion, so you have that weirdness of Jamie being out but also being annoying <laughs> for half of it. <laughs> uh, Polly being kind of the girl but also coming up with the answer to how to, you know, attack at least. Although, you know, it's kind of weird that because when they figured out the chemical attack, that didn't really do much, right? I mean. It, they they were still in trouble. The the Cybermen were still there. Uh, so at best, they, they knocked out a couple of them. Um, yeah, well, it solved their immediate problem because it got rid of the ones that were actually in yeah, the base terrorizing everybody. Yeah, that's uh, true. So it bought them, in, bought them some time. Yeah, that's a good point. That's legitimate. So, uh, but I will say one of the nostalgia things for me is that, you know, I, I grew up an extremely heavy classic science fiction reader, right? I mean, I read just hundreds and hundreds of of uh, Heinlein and Asimov and, you know, all those people. And mm-hmm. so it is, you know, this is totally the 50s, 60s science fiction thing, right? You know, the moon base and the, you know, and, and all that. And also it, it does remind me of something that's, that was really surprising in how things have developed at least so far, right? Which is, and and most science fiction got this wrong, although some some did get it right. But um, science fiction was really premised on the on the reasonable idea at the time that, of course, we're going to the moon now and and everything. You know, in decades from now, we're going to have people living on the moon, and you know, we're going to have lots of people oh, flying sure. around we're, and all this. And we're Americans, and we've got the pioneer spirit, and we're right. going to explore the final frontier. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah and, and part sure. of the romance of reading like the Heinlein juveniles is, oh, yeah, I can, you know, be a kid who manages to, you know, cheat my way onto a spaceship and have the, you know, whatever. And that didn't happen. But what did happen that that was predicted in some science fiction, but again, it wasn't standard, was the computer stuff. Mm, yeah. And if you remember, I mean, even in science fiction, computers were always, you know, took up a room and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, Oh, yeah. Uh, the idea that everyone would have one in their pocket, I mean, you know, and 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 everything, and and I think the the key misunderstanding about space, even if we do more in the future, we're never gonna, it's never gonna be anything like what any of the shows, Star Trek or the other shows do, because the thing that humans cannot grasp is the size of space, how big space is. Right? Oh yeah, and although. There, there is at least some chance that what we know of physics now yeah. is just we're just scratching the surface. Well, and know? that's why science fiction writers have come up with things like wormholes and stuff, right? Or at least as travel mechanisms, yeah. right? Because they needed something. Because the reality, and I remember there's a game designer. I'll probably, you know, I'll probably put some of this at the end or cut it out or whatever. But um, there's a game designer who did a, a space strategy, you know, three X game that was pretty good, and he, you know, people wanted him to do like realistic planets and space sizes and everything. And he said, you don't understand (laughs) if, if we, let's say on the map had the solar system with the planets spaced apart accurately, (laughs) you wouldn't be able to see any of them. (laughs) They're so far apart. Right. Uh, 
and right. you know, and then the time it would take to go between, you know, even just the planets in a solar system would be incredible, right? And 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 so this idea that we're going to be hopping around in spaceships, you know, like visiting something for lunch or whatever, is just so far from reality. <laughs> but I think that it, it, we hadn't really internalized that back then, and because we could figure out how to get to the moon, it seemed like it would just be a hop, skip, and step to get to the other planets, right? And it's not not true. I mean, we can yeah. get to Mars. We've gotten stuff to Mars, but you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really have to postulate, you know, to to get that kind of quick space travel. There has to be hyperdrive or warp drive or the like. Starfield has the grav drive, and, or you go the other uh, approach, which yeah. Heinlein and others did, the generation ship, right? Where you're just the rest of you know, multiple right. people's lives are going to be spent getting there. So now we're talking about something that at least makes some sense, even if it, I don't know that you could really yeah, make it work. It's, yeah, try keeping a. An ecosystem on a ship for like like in Starfield, you can actually run into one of those ships that. Uh, but you not don't want to say much more because of spoilers. But yeah, it's uh to keep a, a ship alive for two hundred years or whatever, you'd have to have some really great technology and understanding of all the systems that are involved in you know recirculating the air recycling the food well, of course doctor who did cover this in the arc episode right that was a generation ship so <laughs> and they oh, have, yeah. you know you're shrinking everybody down and uh until they get there and all that yeah. um so uh okay well that's uh, enough of all that <laughs> sometimes yeah uh, but i'm you i'm know, it uh like I said, I actually I had more fun discussing this show <laughs> than uh, uh, I did actually watching through it. So uh, you know, maybe maybe my recommendation is uh, if you have a friend that you like to talk about shows in detail with, <laughs> maybe watch it just to do that. But, uh, my uh, recommendation is just listen to this podcast because, in fact, I mean that's one of the points, right? Is like nobody wants to go back and slog through all this stuff if they're not real dedicated to the cause right and yeah. if it's really good well yeah go and watch it but if it's not really good it's going to be more fun to hear us talk about it and give you a idea of what it's <laughs> we about, hope you know, at we, least <laughs> yeah you can get an idea of what it's about that you can listen to on your commute or something and not actually take up you know valuable tv watching time <laughs> yeah yeah we're more portable than the than the show yeah so that's that's a selling point for us let's get rich <laughs> off that <laughs> okay, so next up, the entirely missing, but it thankfully entirely animated, the Macra Terror. You know, will it ever be safe to eat seafood mm-hmm. again? <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right, we'll see what that's all about. Digression that won't be part of the podcast here, but have you heard this stupid theory that some people have that um, if you don't have a word for something, you can't conceive of it? And and they they use this to say that, for example, natives could not see the ships coming to shore because they didn't have a word for them. It's like, no, they could see the ships coming to shore. (laughs) Yeah, that was exactly the example that popped into my head. I don't I don't know if that's in the secret or what the bleep, uh, whatever that movie was, but uh, <laughs> one of them uses that exact example, and I uh, 
Uh, yeah, I've never found that terribly plausible. Um, they they saw something. Maybe they didn't have a name for it, but they uh, they knew it was out there. <laughs> <laughs> now there probably are cases where well, I mean there certainly are cases where things that say Sherlock Holmes would immediately find riveting, you know, I would just uh, pass over without a second glance. But uh, <laughs> it's not quite the same deal as seeing a giant uh, ship on the horizon. You know? right. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of hard to miss. And the fact that you don't know what it is makes it all the more something you <laughs> want to watch closely, I yeah. would think. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of it. I was like, <laughs> let's think about this as a, um, um evolutionary thing, you know, Oh, if you don't have a word for it, you can't see it. How long does that species exist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a definite weakness, uh, as the Cybermen would call it. <laughs> you fool!